Well, hey guys, um, my name is Melissa. I'm on staff with Chi Alpha, in case you are new. Um, that's who I am. That's all I got planned for that. <laughs> but um, tonight we're kicking off our teaching series for winter quarter. You guys probably remember last quarter we did a series, topical series called Foundations. And to start off this winter quarter, we're teaching through a book of the Bible. We often like to kind of rotate between topical series and books of the Bible. So I am excited we get to start a book tonight. And for the first part of this quarter, spoiler alert, we are studying the book of Philippians. Whoa. Um, I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of Philippians or read it before, and many of you are probably hearing that word for the first time tonight. So for this first message, I want to kind of spend a lot of our time introing what that means and, and the kind of laying the groundwork for the series, and then we'll also read the first little part of the book tonight. Um, so let's get those Bible passages going. If you guys would like a Bible, just kind of raise your hands and they will get one to you, and you can feel free to keep it as our gift to you. And whenever you have your Bible, you can start opening up to Philippians 1 uh, because, you know, it'll take a little while for all of us to find it, tiny little book in the right side of the Bible. So as those Bibles get going, just as a personal note, as we intro this series, I just want to tell you guys straight up, I absolutely love Philippians. My first memories of this book were back in middle school, my church's youth group. Um, one of our leaders gave all of us the challenge that if anybody wanted to memorize Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, 19 verses, over like a month or two of the summer, he would take that person or those people to a Mariners game. Now this was 20 years ago, we didn't say bet then, or for you know most of human history until recently, by the way, um, but essentially I was like, bet, and I started practicing memorizing those 19 verses. I hope I did that right, probably didn't, anyways. But, thank you Erica, awesome. I remember practicing those verses in the kitchen, I remember practicing them on the drive to and from soccer practice, I remember practicing them on the way to church, I remember my mom asking me if I wanted to just like give up and be done. I think she was tired of hearing the first several verses I practiced it through so many times. Um, but I am stubborn, you know, probably a shocker, and um, I wanted to complete the challenge, and I did. And of the, like the 80 or so kids in our youth group, three of us girls completed the challenge and got to go to a Mariners game. And I remember that time, like I remember <clears throat> our leader brought us to this like restaurant right across from Wendy's that I would always eat at with my family on Wednesdays and look at this burger place. I tried to find it on Google Maps yesterday, but now it's like a giant apartments in Bellevue, so no luck. Shocker. But um, anyways, he got his burgers and milkshakes. That was really cool. And then um, we got to the Mariners game, and his seats were 18 rows behind home plate, like right behind home plate. I'd never been that close before. I was like a nosebleeds family. So um, that was exciting. <clears throat> I remember I was so close to the field that I, f I think it was Raul Ibanez, Back then, Michael probably remembers glory days. Anyways, um, he was on deck warming up, and this lady yelled out a comment about his rear end. Hope I don't get trouble saying this. And I could see him blush, like not on the big screen, but with my own eyes. I was like, I'm so close. I'm sharing in this awkward moment with this man <laughs> who just wants to bat, and he's still like this lady. Anyway, so that awkward moment has stayed with me and now is a part of your lives as well. You're welcome. Um, but anyways, those memories are clearly still with me. But honestly, you guys, the real gift is that those 19 verses are still with me. The point is that although those memories are very clear in my mind still 20 years later, um, the real gift of those 19 verses are still with me. And you guys, when we hide God's word in our hearts and our minds, it, it's there and the Holy Spirit can remind us of it all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've been 
teaching on something else, I'm like, ooh, that reminds me of Philippians 2, 9. Or like, ooh, this reminds me of Philippians 2. Or every time I teach about relationships, it goes back to Philippians 2. Those verses, like, they become a part of the foundation of who I am because of memorizing them at a young age. Um, and as an aside, this is just an aside, if anybody wants to take up that similar challenge 20 years later, if you want to memorize those verses, especially guys, no guys from my youth group did it, I'm just saying, you're invited. Um, I will buy you something cool. I'm positive that I cannot afford Mariner's tickets. Pretty sure about that. But we'll work with a budget on Amazon. I'll buy you something cool. So if you memorize those this quarter, let me know. But anyways, that is my first memory of the book of Philippians. And as we get into it tonight, um, I just want to kind of introduce what it's like for all of you guys. So for starters, did you guys know that the Bible is made up of 66 individual books? But what we call individual books aren't like the same way we think of a book today. Um, they're, they're individual literary works that all follow a certain literary format. Take biblical literacy if you want to know a ton more. Um, or discipleship class. But some of the books in the Bible, they're just straight poems. Some are straight stories. And just like you learned in language arts or English class, you have to learn, or you have to read and interpret stories very differently than poetry, right? And even within stories, you have to approach narrative very different, like nonfiction, very different than like dystopian satire. And it's the same with the Bible. We have to know what kind of literature are we dealing with so we know how to approach it and how to study it in the way the author intended. But with the Bible, we also have the added bonus that we get to do some time travel, right? We're going back two, three, like many thousands of years and also going to a very, very different culture than our Western world today. Um, so I don't say all that to make it seem like, woo, that sounds really hard to study the Bible um, because it's, it's awesome and approachable. But just to illustrate, when we read something new in the Bible, we really got to like, not just go default mode, like scrolling on, you know, our phones and then scrolling the Bible. It's like put our brains into like active mode, like shift into a gear of like paying attention. And we got to do a little bit of time travel and, and kind of check out the landscape of what we're reading. So a good tip is just to look at the who, what, where, when, and why. Um, so for Philippians, we're just going to start with the who. So in general, the name Philippians indicates that it was written to the people who believed in Jesus, a church, in the city of Philippi. Just like Ephesus is written to the believer, Ephesians is written to the believers in Ephesus, Colossians, the believers in Colossae, and so on. So what we now call this book of Philippians was actually originally a letter um, that was written to this church as a whole, um, to the believers in Philippi, not to one individual person, but to the whole family together. So when you read you, for example, it's a, it's a plural you. It's a you guys or y'all or something, not just like a, hey, you, Braden, or something like that. Although, you know, God could maybe call you out. Who knows? Um, so for the other who, who wrote this letter to the believers in, in Philippi? Well, it was written by a pretty famous guy named Paul. And Paul is a name you'll hear a lot around here because he's basically the goat at sharing the gospel, starting churches, and like instructing rookie believers and communities in how to follow Jesus. Because like, I mean, I could talk about his story for a long time, kind of have a Bible crush on him, moving on. Um, but after Jesus like radically, I'm blushing anyways, after he radically changed <laughs> Paul's life, um, don't look at my face, Paul went on a lot of missionary journeys, um, which are like SBO trips, but a lot longer and more intense. And he went with shipwrecks involved, which we probably will not have over our spring break. Um, and Paul just shared the good news about Jesus all over the known world at the time. And actually, the church in Philippi was the first church that Paul ever started in Eastern Europe. Fun fact. And then whenever Paul was arrested, as would happen by people who didn't love him talking about Jesus um, being the real king, and he'd be put in prison, 
um, he would spend that time writing letters out to, the, to the, the churches he'd helped start to instruct them on how to follow Jesus and live this new way with Jesus as their king. Because when we start following Jesus, even nowadays, we don't always naturally know how do I live differently with Jesus as king rather than myself or my old priorities that used to rule my life, right? Like, how do I live in the same house, the same campus, same family, same town, same major, but with a totally new king on the throne of my life? So Paul would write letters to these faraway churches, helping them, encouraging them, correcting them, dropping some bars, is that what you guys say? Anyways, he was like, he was just, <laughs> he was like helping them in so many ways learn how to live, to follow Jesus, and live counterculturally. Paul's letters were so effective and helpful for believers around that whole world at that time, and when they're canonized in the Bible, they continue to instruct us today. Um, so basically, Paul was brilliant and wise and 100% all in with Jesus. So that all being said, um, let's switch to what was the scene like for these believers back in the day in Philippi? What was it like at that time? What was their world, their context that we're building? So let's paint a background picture of these people of, like, as we're coming into reading Paul's mail, basically, and um, hearing his conversation with them. Where were they at? So for background info, there's two basic things to know about Philippi. The first is that it was a Roman colony. So the Roman Empire was like a pretty big deal, um, one might say, and it was the big deal at Paul's time. And it's like honestly impossible for me to wrap my, my head around what it would be like for people in the New Testament to live and breathe in this totally Roman-dominated world. Like, I don't think Seahawks craze or, like, any political thing nowadays can, can really approximate what that world was like. Um, but Philippi was one of many Roman colonies. Um, and what happened was about 100 years before Paul's time, there were civil wars. And after the wars, there were all these Roman soldiers that Rome had to figure out what to do with. And Rome was already the largest city in the world. It was struggling with a lot of overpopulation and chronic food shortages. And so the last thing they wanted was a bunch of swaggering soldiers coming back to town looking for some land to take over. So instead, they planted colonies all over Greece and Turkey, et cetera, and settled the military veterans there. And that helped them bring Roman civilization out to those colonies, those, those outposts, and also pacify them and keep them however Rome wanted. Um, and also, Rome, back at home in Italy, was like, sweet, we don't have all these extra homies coming down and like taking land that's not there. Um, so that was a good situation for them. So Philippi is located in northern Greece, and it sat on the Via Ignatia, which is a Roman road that ran, I don't have a map, I don't know why I did that. Last time I preached this, I had a map. Anyways, um, this Roman road that ran across northern Greece and over to the Adriatic Sea so that you can make a quick little sea crossing to Italy and Rome. And the point is that Philippi had a privileged position on that road, and Philippi was proud of being a Roman colony. So the thing to take away from all this little tiny history lesson is it was a place known for patriotic nationalism. And as you might imagine, when Paul went there and he preached a new message that actually Jesus is the rightful king of the world rather than Caesar, he encountered a lot of resistance. And after Paul left Philippi and moved on to other places to share the good news, um, all the people who had responded to the message and followed Jesus, the little baby church, they continued to face resistance and persecution from the people in their community. Um, but even in the face of this suffering and persecution, they were remaining faithful um, to Jesus. So that's the first thing, that it was a Roman colony and known for patriotic nationalism. The second thing to know about Philippi in that day is it was crazy diverse. So the reality of this world in Philippi is that it was full of diversity and opposites. Though it was a colony with many retired soldiers, not everybody in Philippi was a Roman citizen. Some people refused to be, and there could have been a lot of tension in the community and the church, 
between those who were like, I heart Rome, like full Roman citizen all the way, and those who would not do that. Like maybe older families who resented the colonies or poor people who couldn't afford the extra taxes. Um, and also throughout the Roman world, there was always like a small elite who were super, super rich. And then a big majority who were on the edge of poverty or like full on poverty. And there was also slaves, like maybe 30 to 50% of the population would, would be slaves rather than free people. And of course, slavery was very different than, than today. But what I'm trying to say is that all this social mix I just described, when Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, we have to assume it had a similar social mix to what I just said. So the people who heard the gospel in Philippi probably represented the makeup of their city, right? So there are some people in the church who love Rome and some people who hate Rome and some people who are really poor and some who are really, really rich and some slaves and some free people. So it's all just a big mix. So as we read this, this letter and we're listening in on a conversation, it's not just Paul to some homies. It's like Paul to some friends who are very different from each other, socially, culturally, economically, ethnically. And one of the things Paul's going to emphasize is they have to live together as a united family. So that's the thing to take away from this. They're, they're so diverse. Paul's going to really be calling them to unity as the family of Jesus. Okay, that is the end, I promise, of the history lesson. Um, but uh, as I just described the world of the Philippians at that time, I just want us to pause and like critically think for a second. Are there any similarities um, to what I just described, the situation of Philippi, to your situation or to, to our context? Although we're thousands of years distant from the Roman Empire, it's not a thing anymore, um, at least I haven't heard of it in a while. Um, maybe you grew up in a place that's proud of patriotic nationalism and has certain resistance to the gospel in that regard. Or maybe you've experienced a lot of diversity in the community of faith back home or here in Kyalfer in your core. I'm not trying to say that we are supposed to like copy paste our experience onto the Philippians. That's like the total opposite of what I'm saying. Um, but as we are peeking into their worlds, let's connect our hearts to their situation and see how was the gospel countercultural to them at that time. How are Paul's words going to hit crazy different than anything I've ever heard before to them? And how does this stuff continue to be radical for us today? Whoa, that was loud, sorry. Um, so that covered a lot of our background questions, but for our last question I want to focus on is why. Why is Paul writing this letter to these people at this moment? The short answer is that Paul is in prison and they have just sent him some help. So one of the things about, a, I said I was on the history lesson, this is a tiny little history add-on. One of the things about an ancient Roman prison is it wasn't the same as prisons nowadays, um, where you get caught, whoopsies, go on trial, get sentenced to five years or whatever, and then serve out your sentence in prison. Hopefully none of us ever have to do that. Um, but rather, back then, prison was somewhere that they put you while they were waiting to see what they were going to do with you. Um, it was like this holding pattern before your trial. So Paul's in prison, but he hasn't even gone on trial yet, and he has no idea what the outcome of his future trial is going to be. He could be fined heavily, he could be banished, he could be given the death penalty. And as we'll read in his letter, Paul is clearly facing the, the possibility that it might be the death penalty for him this time. Um, but for right now, he's just on hold. But while someone was in prison, like Paul, the authorities didn't feed you. So if you wanted to, like, perhaps eat or drink, which I personally wouldn't be inclined to do if I were in that situation, um, you, had, you would have to have friends bring you whatever you needed in like prison where you were. Like they have to do your Starbucks runs and get keto and all that stuff. Like they have to bring it to you because um, you can't go anywhere. And so Paul probably has some friends locally wherever he's in prison, but the Philippian church has just sent him a big gift of money to help him out in this time and cover some of those expenses. So one of the main purposes of this letter is Paul saying a huge thank you for that much needed gift. 
So with all that in our minds as the context, the background, let's dive in right now and read the first section of the letter tonight. And we're going to see what Paul has to say to these rookie believers at this point in history and us as well. So we're going to start by reading Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Man, that is way better than any greeting card I've ever read for sure. Just thrown out there for starters. Um, but Paul starts off his, his letter with his big prayer of thanksgiving to them. He's grateful for their generosity and their faithfulness in sending him this gift that I just talked about. And guys, one thing to notice is you can tell through his words how dearly he loves this church. It's not like some theologian responding to some like internet person who submitted a question is like, okay, to whom it may concern, like do-do-do. Like, this is like a facilitator talking about their core. This is like a parent talking about their kids. You can tell the familiarity and affection that's just like dripping from his words. Paul loves these guys. He knows these guys very personally. I love the part where he expresses his confidence that the God who began a good work in them, like when they started to follow Jesus, God started a good work in them. And he says God's going to continue sustaining that and multiplying it, growing it, to just bring about even more expressions of, of generosity and good stuff in their lives. Can you guys imagine for a second how this might feel if we were in their shoes? Like, pretend that this ministry was started by one of the missionaries we support, like Jamie in Morocco, for example. Say that Jamie started this ministry, and then she moved on um, to other places. Now she's in Morocco, hopefully not in prison in Morocco, but just, you know, doing her mission work there. And she wrote a letter back to us. And so tonight, when I get to teach, I'm just reading her, her letter to us, to Central Kyalfa. And I read these words that she's like, she smiles when she thinks of us. That when she prays for us, she prays with so much joy. And that she's grateful for our partnership in the gospel from the first day we believed and became this little baby ministry until now. Have you ever considered yourself a partner in the gospel? Have you considered yourself a partner in the gospel with others who are on the front lines, missionaries all around the world, and really everybody who loves Jesus and is working to bring his kingdom to this world? If I were in the Philippians' shoes, I can hardly imagine how encouraging these words would be. Like if I've been enduring persecution because I love Jesus in the town that I live, um, and to hear Uncle Paul write and say that he's confident that the God who saved me is gonna, and began a good work, he's gonna keep growing and multiplying it um, until it's complete. That would be so encouraging. It's like, oh yeah, I'm not just out here on my own strength, loving Jesus, like hoping my power is gonna get me through, you know, these persecutions. Like, it would be so encouraging to remember, oh yeah, God, he made everything. He's got a lot more strength than I do. He's the one working in me with his own strength, his own faithfulness to keep me going. That would be so encouraging, right? So after this opening section where Paul's just expressing his deep thanks and his encouragements, he's going to jump to turn his focus to the top concern in their minds, which is, how are you doing in prison? 
So let's read the last part of our section tonight. Um, we're going to read verses 12 through 26. And so Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I'll continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm, not, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. Man, what a section. Um, what is Paul saying here? So basically he's saying, while it's not fun being in prison, not claiming that it's fun, he says it's ironically turned out for so much good because it's helping the good news about Jesus to spread in advance. Paul being in prison is resulting in so much good, he says, because everybody in prison, the guards, the administrators, literally everybody, they know that he's in chains because he loves Jesus. And also, Paul's being in prison, that has encouraged and emboldened emboldened other Christians who are not in prison to share all the more boldly about Jesus, which is a really, really good thing. So here's my question. Why is Paul saying that? Does he really believe what he's saying? Or is he trying to like downplay the reality or put a more positive spin on it? I remembered how like over break when I was sick with the flu, my mom would text me like every day asking how I'm doing. And I noticed I would tend to put a more positive spin on how I was doing because I didn't want her to worry. Because I'm like, you can't really do anything from the west side, mom. Like, uh, I'm just going to tell you, like, you know, not the full, like, situation. I'm going to put a little bit more positive. So is Paul doing the thing where he's, like, texting my mom? I don't think that Paul is doing the thing of texting my mom and trying to downplay so that the Philippians don't worry. Reading all this in context and everything else that Paul's written, I think he really, truly believes that his situation of being in prison is resulting in a ton of good. Why? I think the answer to that question depends on what someone is living for. Is being in prison advancing his health? Is it advancing his financial stability? His professional aspirations? His five-year plan? His reputation? His comfort? His entertainment needs or expectations? I think it's a straight no across the board on all those things. But Paul doesn't seem to be bothered one bit because apparently none of those things are on the throne of his life anymore. Honestly, a convicting question that came up when I was reading this and, and writing is, if I was in Paul's shoes, would I be able to write the same thing? That I think that being in prison is resulting in good. If you were in Paul's shoes, could you write the same thing? Honestly, I don't think that I've 100% converted my priorities from human priorities to the one that Paul's expressing. I mean, he's human. 
too, obviously, but he's a lot farther closer to Jesus than I am, I guess. But I think I would still consider my personal comfort or my, my sense of freedom or safety or my family's needs as some um, things to consider. Although I love Jesus a ton, I think I'm still tied down by those things than this kind of full send, all in devotion and just detachment from everything else and where Paul's just totally focused on Jesus' good and Jesus' priorities. So what about you guys? What is on the throne of your life? What do you prioritize that would make you say, if you were in Paul's shoes, oh, being in prison is, is resulting in so much good, or man, being in prison is really horrible. What things are on the throne of your life, and are those helping or hurting your relationship with Jesus? I think it all boils down to what is on the throne of one's life. And I think the key to Paul's mindset here is found in verse 21 when he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That is so, so simple. And yet it, it's like a key that makes this section all make sense. Paul has clarified his purpose. He knows so clearly what he's living for. If life is Paul's comfort, prison sucks. If life is Paul's educational goals or his professional aspiration, prison is probably a big setback in a lot of annoying ways. But if life is Jesus and seeing his gospel message go out near and far, Paul has the lens to see how prison is actually advancing that so that there's so much good in the situation. And guys, that challenges me. I don't know if it challenges you, but it challenges me. And, and honestly, I envy the clarity that Paul has. Like, do you guys notice how much clarity he has the focus that he has when he faces a hard thing, like being in prison for his faith, he isn't conflicted or confused or lost or whining or anything else. He's clear-minded. He knows what his life is about. He knows what his priorities are. And his eyes are set on the goal. He's not bothered by worldly priorities being sacrificed or taken away from him. So even though Paul's in prison, throughout this whole letter, he's not embarrassed by his situation. He celebrates the situation. Because at the heart of the Philippians, there's this overturning of normal expectations of what human life is all about, what makes it worthwhile or something to celebrate. So even though Paul's in prison, even though he doesn't know if he's going to get out alive or not, he's celebrating. He wants the Philippian church to celebrate along with him. Because as Paul says, his life is all about the crucified Messiah, King Jesus. And if Paul says towards the end of his section, um, I know it could be a little confusing with all the like, am I going to die, am I not, do I want to die? Um, but he's basically saying like, if, I, if my result is I'm going to be executed, well, bonus, I get to be with Jesus, which is going to be incredible. And if the trial results in my life being spared, other bonus, I get to like keep serving all these churches I'm ministering to and parenting from afar, which is probably even better overall than him getting to just go be with Jesus right away. But again, do you see how it's so simple because Paul's life is all about Jesus. So as we move to responding tonight, I just want to invite all of us to reflect on what I think Paul's example challenges us to reflect on. Um, we put the applications up, questions up um, now. It's, these are deep questions, you guys. Um, like what things are on the throne of your life? What do you want your life purpose to be? Those are deeper than I normally put for application questions for like five minutes of journaling, you know? But I think that if we don't seriously think about these questions, if we don't clarify these things for ourselves, we're kind of just inviting confusion in our lives, right? We're kind of just wasting our time. Um, like if I'm trying to like go in two places at once or have like double priorities, be satisfied, like it's really confusing and exhausting. Um, but if you know what you're about, you, you know what to do in every situation. 
And guys, here's the incredible thing. You get to choose what you want to follow in your life. Only you have the power to decide what you want to follow or be about. By default, like our factory default setting is we all are following sin and the ways of this world and ourselves. That's our factory default. But if you, you get to choose what you want to live for. And just because you've been on one path before, set up by your parents or professors or plans or whatever, doesn't mean that old authority needs to stay the top dog forever. If that were the case, nobody could ever start following Jesus because we can never change. You get to decide what you want to live for. And I'm just inviting us to think about that tonight. Um, as, and Paul would say, and I would echo Jesus' words in John 10, 10, where he said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. I think Jesus is obviously the ultimate example of somebody who knew 100% from the moment they got here what his purpose was and what he was living for. And with everything that happened to him, Jesus knew how that related to his ultimate mission. He wasn't shaken by little things because he had a crystal clear purpose and focus. And Paul, obviously, is another great example that we see shining through this section of Philippians. Um, he knew his focus. So as the worship team comes on up, I just want to invite all of us to process for ourselves, what do you want? What do you want to live for? Who or what are you going to place on the throne of your life? Because if you want to follow Jesus all in, 100% full send like Paul, or clarify your life right now, it's not going to be Jesus and five other priorities all kind of scrambling for the throne, but Jesus is 100%. I invite you to make that important decision tonight. Because if you do, you'll still experience conflict and pressure from the competing priorities of this world, like we always will. But inside, you'll have clarified your focus. You'll have the secret to being content and to having life that's the fullest, to live as Christ. So um, let's just transition to a couple minutes of journaling, just those two questions on the screen. What is on the throne of your life or what's competing for the throne? And what do you want to live for? What do you want your life purpose to be? And let's just process as the team plays quietly and um, then we'll keep moving to responding to Jesus tonight. <laughs> 